real quickly here, before we get into it, I had a dear sister mention to me or address something with me that I had said last Sunday, and I, I just want to make it clear. It's regarding the issue of anxiety, um, and Rick has touched on this. I'll just read to you what I shared with them, because anyone who deals with anxiety on a chronic basis, I don't want you to hear that and think, is Jake condemning me? Is this what the church is about? No. So let me, hear, let me just read with you what I shared with them. Anxiety is real. It's not make-believe, and God doesn't want us to have it. He also doesn't condemn us for wrestling with it. He calls us to wrestle through it with him. He loves us through it, okay? And those who deal with it chronically are no less honorable or spiritual. That is just another indication of our flesh. Anxiety is not of God. He doesn't want us to live in that. But he also doesn't look at us going, come on, get your act together. He loves us through it if we will keep our hearts turned to him and let him teach us how to live out of anxiety and into his peace. But I just want you to know, if you struggle with it, I have this last year, we're not less honorable or less spiritual for having to deal with it. He calls us to renew our minds, and that is a process. We good? All right. Last Sunday, we took a look at the definition of church. Who? Who is the church? Not what. Jesus defined who the church is in Matthew 16, 18. Jesus defines the church as the people that God has called out from the dominion, the domain of the darkness of this world, its systems, its practices, which means as believers, independent disciples who make up the body of Christ, we're not called to live like the rest of the world. We're different. That's okay. And not the kind of different that the world talks about either. We're called to live separate, still in the world, but not living like the world, according to its values and its practices. Romans 12, 2 teaches us. Therefore, also those whom Jesus has called out of this darkness has called us into the kingdom of his light. So he's it, following Jesus isn't a list of don'ts. Don't do this. You can't do this. You can't have this. He says, instead of this, do this. I came that they might have life. No longer walk in the darkness of our flesh, which leads to death, but walk according to the spirit, which gives life. Jesus is all about life, but we can't do that if we're clinging to the world, right? So, and Colossians 1.13 talks about this. Pastor Les, this last Wednesday, talked about what it means to follow Jesus. When Jesus began his ministry, he didn't call one apostle, he called 12 12. It wasn't a solitary event. It wasn't an isolated individual. It was a group effort, so to speak. And besides them, he called other men and women. We know throughout Jesus's ministry, he had some women who were with him by his side, serving, caring, living, and serving with him. So our identity is created and defined by Jesus, but he's also designed our identity to be realized and experienced within his body, the church, his people. Just like, for example, as we've been seeing through Bamidbar, our study through the wilderness with Israel, Israel was made up of millions of Hebrews, millions. Yet they followed God like one people through the wilderness. And in the same way, we as disciples of Christ are individually unique, but... We follow him, Jesus, as the head 
of our one body, unison, in unity. Last week, we read out of 1 Corinthians 12. And just like each body part depends on the head, which is Jesus, to coordinate its numerous and diverse parts together simultaneously, individual disciples depend on Jesus as the head to coordinate our cooperation together. If we're the body of Christ, we gotta move in unison, together, building each other up. That's what we looked at last week. We're gonna understand more today how that actually looks. It's a great picture, a beautiful paradigm, but how does it practically work? How do we take part in the body of Christ? And this week, we're gonna look at the how. How does the body of Christ function? How do we function differently in our individual members and yet move in harmony in the same way towards the same goal? There's that word again, same. We're gonna see it again today as we're in Philippians, same. How is the church made up of such different and diverse people? I'm looking at all of you at the same time. We've got some diversity here. How can we be so different and diverse and yet somehow the same? The church is the picture of unity and diversity. The world would like to say it has the corner on the market there, but not so. Because humanity, for all of its efforts, are still focused on the flesh, which as much as we'll try to unify ourselves together under one cause, in the end, there's gonna be fractures, factions. Why? Because to live by the flesh stirs up, promotes selfish ambition and jealousy. Paul, or James, Yaakov, Jacob writes that selfish ambition and jealousy cause disorder, chaos. It's demonic, which means true unity isn't experienced through humanity. True unity is experienced under and with Jesus in his body. So let's look at some context here as we get into answering the question of how the church functions. Look at Philippians chapter one with me in verse 21. And I'm gonna take a swig of water really quick. Paul writes to the church that's in Philippi, for to me, live to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Jesus, for that is very much better. Yet, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith." so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Very relational here. Paul writes this letter to the Philippian believers as he's in prison. A number of our, these epistles are written while Paul was in prison, which I find interesting because Philippians especially is chocked full of Verbiage using joy and rejoice. How do you have joy when you're in the deepest, darkest dungeons of life? We're gonna look at that. (laughs) Paul preached this gospel, was convinced and convicted of this truth because he lived it out in his own body and through his own life. See, if Jesus calls us to follow him and Jesus, by virtue of his life and death and burial, 
proclaims and models, gives us the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus. And if we choose to identify with him, that means we follow in his example, which means there's life and there's death to the self. And I'm getting ahead of myself. But Paul not only preached the gospel, he practiced, he lived it out in his own body. It wasn't easy. Paul sacrificed his comfort and gave up pleasure for his own person for the sake of Jesus's glory and for the good of Jesus's church, his body. Romans 12.1, Paul writes to the church in Rome, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. When I went into the military, I learned something. There were a number of things I learned, but one of them is, and this is not to discount the incredible sacrifice paid by men and women who have died for the sake of our freedoms in this country, but that sacrifice of duty ends the moment that life is over. To serve in the military, and this goes for both, not just the person serving, but it's their family members who are involved with them, daily they have to sacrifice. When you, you sign your name on the dotted line, you swear the oath, and you give your life to defend this country, every day is a daily sacrifice. I don't know how many know this, but when you, give, when you become someone in the military, you give up certain rights and privileges as a common citizen. And I remember being in the army, coming into boot camp and seeing a lot of young guys with their big eyes going, wait, this isn't what I signed up for. What about my rights? You gave those up when you signed your name. We give those up when we claim his name. To experience Jesus' life is to share in Jesus' sufferings and death also. You can't have resurrection until there's death first. Turn over with me to, well, not turn over, but continue with me in verse 27. And, and I'll say this, I'll add this too. Personally, I remember this was something that my dad taught my brother and I in his many lectures. <laughs> it's like, dad, just spank me and get it over with. I don't want to stand here for hours. But it was one thing for, you know, he said, You're, Jesus hasn't given us to you and your brother to die. Every day we have to deny ourselves to serve you, to encourage you, to build you up, to feed you. As parents, we're all too familiar with that daily denial. And our ability to raise our kids up in the image of Christ is going to be dependent on how much we deny ourselves for his glory and for the good of our kids. So here in verse 27, Paul continues. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I'll hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, singular. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that also from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. You know, I read this, I think it was yesterday, and uh, I Tried to cite it first service, but I couldn't remember. And fortunately, another sister of mine read the same thing, so they sent this to me. 
It's regarding the gospel, the basic foundation of God's word. Why did Jesus come? He didn't just come to teach us a moral lesson. He came to live among us, to show again, yet again, his desire to be personal and intimate in a relationship with each and every one of us, and then to offer to us what we could not get ourselves. See, because everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. None are good. Romans 3.23 talks about that. We've all sinned. So why did Jesus come? He came recognizing that our sin separates us from him. And the end result of that sin is death. And not just a, a, a physical death, but true death is separation from the living God. If God is love, John 4.1, then to be separate from him, we get the opposite. The absence of love. It's horrible. It's a place we call hell. And so it is we need to remember that Jesus, the gospel, the good news is God coming down to humanity to give us what we could never reach on our own. We can't strive and make ourselves good enough. Only God is good. So I'll read what um, J.I. Parker, I'm sorry, J.I. Packer said, if we do not preach about sin and God's judgment on it, we cannot present Christ as savior from sin, savior from the wrath of God. And if we're silent about these things and preach a Christ who saves only from self and only from the sorrows of this world, we are not preaching the Christ of the Bible. Goes on. We are, in effect, bearing false witness and preaching a false Christ. Our message is another gospel, which is not another. Such preaching may, may soothe some, but it will help nobody for a Christ who is not seen and a Christ who's not sought as savior from sin will not be found to save from self or anything else. We preach Christ crucified. We have to remember and live by the reality as much as it sounds foolish to others. Jesus is real. He's the son of God. And the reason we have hope is because he didn't just come to give us a nice message to make us feel good or save us from our, our certain circumstance that we're living in right now but to save us from the eternal circumstance, which is separation from God. That is very real. We, why do we repel against death so much? Because as much as it, is a, as it is a common part of this existence we live as people, we were never created to die. Adam and Eve were supposed to live on forever because they have perfect relationship with the Lord. Death is a result of our sin. How do we get free from that? By embracing Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. He purchased, he paid the price for our sin. Now, I know a lot of you have heard this and, you, and you're like, I get it, Jake. But some need to hear it. And you know what? For those of us who have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we need to be reminded again. So, back to my notes. Paul urges them to live a life worthy of Jesus. What does that actually look like? To live a life worthy of Jesus. He says here at the end of verse 27, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. This is what it looks like to live worthy of Jesus. We can't share with Jesus yet live independent from his body, the church. We're gonna be lacking. Like a hand that dismembers itself from the rest of the body. How, how much good is it? Living worthy of Jesus means living out the gospel assembled together. If we're the body of Christ, does the body of Christ represent the body of Christ? What did Jesus do with his body? He came. 
He loved the world. God the Father loved the world that he gave up his only son so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life, a reconciliation with God, no longer as master and commander and judge, but as our heavenly father. We as the church are commanded and have accepted the call to live that out practically in our relationships with each other in this world. The Philippian church understood this in a way that many didn't because they lived in a community hostile to their identity. Before I go on, we as the church should anticipate persecution as the norm, not the unusual. We've had it good for a long time in this country. I'm really grateful for it, honestly. But 1 Peter 4, 12, Peter writes to the church, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes against you for your testing, or comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Jesus doesn't cause or allow us to go through hard times to see if we'll fail. He already knows. He put Abraham through tests. Why? to prove him. Jesus tests us to prove us. Jesus is always looking for a way to build us up. And when we go through that trial and we come back to the end of it and we turn around and we go, wow, God, you were still there. And because I continue to trust you, I've I've got more confidence now. I have a personal relationship with God. I don't have a religion based on a book. I have a relationship with God. And every moment we go through that's hard and we, we go through these tests and we have faith in God, he builds that confidence in our faith. So Paul is writing to a church that knows what it's like to go through persecution. And I, I saw this also on social media, and I heard about it, but I was reminded by one of our sisters here. She doesn't know that I got this from her. But I'm reminded that a pastor in Alberta, Canada, was imprisoned for five weeks. Our neighbors to the north, you know, like an hour and a half north of us, he's imprisoned for five weeks. Why? Because they decided to gather together like we are right now to enjoy worship, and to take part in God's word. He was in prison for it. Another brother who's a pastor who grew up under the Iron Curtain of communist Soviet Russia in Poland, left there, came also in Canada, and is a pastor, and he's being fined simply for practicing what we're enjoying right now. It's not far down the road for us. I don't say that as a doomsdayer, but we gotta live in a reality. When we think of fellowship, we often imagine enjoying being together in each other's company. And that is totally true. I love being with my wife. I love hanging out with my kids. I love hanging out with you guys. But fellowship goes beyond a block party barbecue or a nonchalant social hangout. Community is where we have things in common. I have things in common with people who live in Anacortes. Fellowship, however, is deeper. You could say it's community in camaraderie. And that, that fellowship is personally knowing someone by sharing life together. We share sorrows together. We share joys together. We go through the defeats and we go through the triumphs together. Fellowship is not just a social gathering Fellowship is experienced in the fiery trials. Fiery trials of life in the valley of the shadow of death and on the Mount of Transfiguration. We, fe- we have fellowship and sharing these things together. Fellowship happens when our faith is forged through fire together. I think I mentioned this last week. Lord of the Rings, the epic saga. 
by J.R.R. Tolkien. They're, the first movie is called The Fellowship of the Ship. They came together, united in spirit, same mind, intent on one purpose. Very different folks. If you watch the movie, you could see there was even tension among some. They're like, I don't like you, but we got the same mission, so I'll join you. And as they did, there was definitely iron sharpening iron, Proverbs 27, 17. There was conflict in their ranks, but as they continued further together, depending on one another, we know how the story ends. Sorry, all you Lord of the Rings people who haven't watched it. Spoiler alert. They complete the mission together, but it wasn't possible without sharing in this together. That was fellowship. It's a great picture. Philippians 3.10, Paul writes later on in his letter to the church in Philippi, that I may know him, that's Jesus, that I may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. See, to have fellowship is to share, but we cannot freely share if we do not genuinely care. If we wanna share in Jesus's joy, we also sign up to suffer the conflicts of Christ. They're one and the same. You, you can't separate the two. And since Jesus himself literally is the gospel and we identify with Jesus, he's in us and we follow him, he calls us to live his gospel. What's the gospel? The life, the death, and the burial of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. But what comes first before that? We have to remember this. Paul wrote this letter to a church who lived in a town conquered and governed by the iron fist of Rome. Philippi was a Roman colony. And this is how Rome would, would function. They would come into a city or come to a territory. They'd battle, they'd win. And then what would they do to build up Rome? People who are totally sold out to the vision of what it means to be Rome would then rule that place. Who better than Roman soldiers? Roman soldiers would govern that area until it grew and grew, and then, you know, civilians would take over. But Philippi was a Roman colony. And Paul writes this letter to a church living in a patriotic, pagan community that was violently opposed to Jesus' values. Acts 16.22, we read, the crowd rose up together against Paul and Silas and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, i.e. without number, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. They were thrown into the deepest, darkest dungeon out of the prison. The Philippian church, guys, knew firsthand the commitment it took to serve Jesus. And what's interesting is we have these Philippian believers who are essentially servants, servant soldiers of Jesus, living in a government and under an authority of Roman soldiers. Paul writes to Timothy, the young pastor in 2 Timothy 2.4, he says, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. As followers of Jesus, we don't live to serve our individual interests anymore. 
That doesn't mean our interests aren't taken care of, but that's not our goal. That's not how we function. Jesus enlisted us. Those of us who believe in Jesus here this morning, Jesus enlisted us into his faith and his spirit disciplines and trains us into a cohesive unit. And so in order, in order to live with that level of resolute commitment of daily sacrifice, here's your first point. The church must be single-minded on the gospel. Everything must be funneled through that filter. Why do you live and breathe? Paul makes it clear, man, I would rather be home with Jesus. Remember, for every day he's on earth, he's got to suffer for the gospel. Selfishly, one, he can't wait to be with Jesus. Two, he knows death in this world means a life of joy. I'm untouchable. I won't experience hardship and suffering anymore. But to live for Christ is to daily deny ourselves. That's the only way a Roman legion worked. They had to depend on each other. And for a Roman legion to work effectively, they couldn't be concerned for their own well-being. They had to look out for the guy on their left and their right. Paul is writing to a group of believers who are witnessing and seeing firsthand what it looks like to be enlisted in service, to die to their own interests. And being a Roman soldier, for all of its perks, had a lot of sacrifice. It was not an easy life. Most of their life would be committed to being a soldier. <laughs> now we, we serve con contracts of three, four years. Back then, if you enlisted to be a Roman soldier, you were looking at 20 years to life. Pun intended. So the church must be single-minded on the gospel. When I went overseas, especially to the Middle East, it was this attitude right here that kept us tight. I went over to a Middle Eastern country to share the gospel, and I joined up with other university students that came from other campuses, very different backgrounds, some of them fairly new in their faith, some of them growing up in the church. We'd never met each other, but we all had a, a singular purpose. We all had a common desire. We want to go share who Jesus is with other college students, but the effective in doing that is if we do it together. And in this Middle Eastern country, out of a month and a half, we only were able to go to a, a church service like this one once. Our team was 10 people. You want to talk about spiritual oppression. It was exhausting. Hear the call to prayer five times a day. And people, people who live with values and patterns, not just different than ours, but in many cases, diametrically opposed to ours. There were real threats. We knew going, we could get a, end up getting arrested which means we had to depend on each other, which means the more we depended on each other, the more we worked together as a cohesive unit. And the reason we had this cohesiveness for as different as we were, I'll never forget Stephen Borba, that poor guy. I mean, love him, but uh, guys living together, you realize which guys, you know, really value hygiene and other guys are it's like, you know, I'll get to it when I need to. What kept us together? What kept us from fighting over superficial things like, bro, we're sharing a room and you haven't bathed in a week. You need to do this. <laughs> what kept us together? What kept us from arguing over petty things? We had one purpose. We had one mind. We were intent on one thing. Our hearts were united for one cause and that was to share the gospel. And when the church functions like that, man, as different as we are, 
It's an indomitable force. I shared this last week, Matthew 16, 18. Jesus says that the gates of Hades, hell itself cannot conquer Jesus' church. When we function like that, Paul starts out his letter to the Philippian church revealing his single-mindedness for the gospel, and he says again in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. My message and preaching weren't in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men or a particular personality, I inserted that, but on the power of God. Pick up with me at Philippians 2.1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And we see this, what Paul writes to the church in Philippi, we see it over and over and over and over. So if you're like, man, Jake, can you quit beating a dead horse? Less, you're a broken record. Paul did it. (laughs) It's in the Bible. Sometimes we need to be reminded. Oftentimes we need to be reminded. So whether we read 1 Corinthians 12 or Ephesians 4 or Romans 16 or 1 Peter 4, the message is the same. The body of Christ must, must live in humble unity through sacrificial love. Philippians 2, verse 1. Let's look at that one more time and break this down a little bit further. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, he says, therefore, if... But this is not actually a conditional statement. If we were to translate it into more common speak... It would read literally, since there is. So it's not a question of if. He's going, because of this, this. Paul gives four reasons for unity. Since there is encouragement. Since there is comfort of love. Since there is fellowship of the Spirit. And since there is affection and compassion. Those are not questionable things. Those are understood, definable truths and facts about the body of Christ. And so I would ask all of us, Can you say personally, can I honestly share with you that I am experiencing the encouragement of Christ in my life? Do I personally know the comfort of his love? Do I know the fellowship of his spirit? And can I tell you with a long list of all the examples of his affection and compassion? But again, what's the context here? It's the church. So it's not just me and God and that's it. It's me and the Lord with my brothers and sisters who I'm looking at right now, looking at me. (laughs) This is a convicting thing because many claim to believe in God but lack actual conviction and I would even go further, surrender to Christ. And we see an example of this in Mark 10, 17. As he, Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So that ends that argument right there, that humanity is generally good. That's not what Jesus teaches. (laughs) You take that one up with the Lord as you will. Jesus also doesn't correct him and say, I'm not good. 
He just wants to make sure this young man knows the definition of good is based on who God the Father is, who is holy and perfect without sin or flaw. And so he makes it clear, you call me good? Only God is good. What does that tell you about me? The young man doesn't understand this yet, as we see. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, why do you call me good? Verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. The young man, the young rich ruler said to Jesus, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth. Really, you've been perfect in honoring your father and mother? Huh. You, you've kept all the commandments? But Jesus doesn't turn to circumspect and skepticism. What does it say here? Verse 21, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. You believe this? Show me and come and follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Let me make a clarification. God, Jesus does not say, if you're rich, you don't know him. Okay, you don't have to be impoverished and poor living on the streets to be a godly person. That's not what Jesus is saying. But I wanna apply this to the context of what it means to be in fellowship with Jesus's body. What in our lives, especially, I'm, I'm talking especially to those of us here who believe in Jesus, what in our lives do we treasure more dearly than fellowship with Jesus's body, with God's people, with the church of Christ? Matthew 6, 20, Jesus says, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Um, really quickly here, show of hands, uh, how many introverts do we have in the fellowship? Oh, see, you're all lying because if you're introverts, you wouldn't have raised your hand. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I've said it many times. I'll give you some examples, though, to prove to you what I'm about to say. I am by nature an introvert. I know that looks weird because I'm up on a stage teaching to a bunch of people. I am an introvert by nature. That's what comes natural. That is what's comfortable. But I was raised by a mom and dad who helped my brother and I see practically how much the church, the body of Christ, is central to our lives. The church doesn't save people, okay? Neither do pastors or anyone in, in authority in, in the church. Only Jesus does that. But again, how can we say we love God when we won't have anything to do with his people? It's a both and thing. The church was so precious to Jesus that he died for her. So <laughs> it's interesting, through my life, there have been many times where I wanted to live like a hermit. Um, I'll give you an example. I was telling you, you won't believe me that I'm an introvert, and that's okay. I'll give you some examples. Hmm. It's a good thing Molly's not here right now. She might be hearing me, though. Or my wife, Cam. When uh, my brother and I would go up to North Idaho to go visit my grandparents as we got older and we're spending weeks and weeks at a time, California kids, 
visiting North Idaho, my grandma wanted to connect us with some teens our age because she thought we were, you know, they were fuddy-duds and they didn't have all the energy to constantly entertain us. I was quite content to be with fuddy-duds. I am a fuddy-dud myself. My brother, however, is like, more people, awesome, yeah. I wore black and brown and dark colors. My brother was wearing neon green and orange. That'll tell you a lot about his personality. God put people like that in my life to constantly challenge my desire to please myself. What pleases Jake? Doing my thing, being mostly solitary, maybe hanging out with a few close friends, and that's it. That's comfortable for Jake. So my, or my grandma introduced my brother and I to a family down the road, <laughs> um, the Cox family. And... Uh, a family full of girls, which my brother was super excited about. I'm like, strange people, I don't know. Girls? <laughs> and when, I, when they came over to my grandparents' house, I was forced to hang out. But for at least a year or two, I remember they'd invite my brother to go to church with them. And <laughs> my brother would be getting ready, and he's like, Jake, are you coming? I'm like, no, I'm okay. I, I, I'm, I'm good. I'm just going to be with Grandma and Grandpa. Well, what do I tell him? Uh, tell him I'm sick. <laughs> I lied. And I remember being up in the upstairs bedroom as my brother went down the stairs, go outside, hop in the car, and I'd look out the curtain and I'd look down and see them and they'd be talking with my brother and as they're talking, they'd stop and go. <laughs> and I was like, draw. <laughs> I can't be seen. I can't be known. I don't want to be with people that I don't know. That's uncomfortable. That doesn't feel good. I don't know them. They don't know me. And they're girls. Man. I was apparently still a believer in cooties when I was in high school. But the point of that is Jesus called us to live in relationship with each other. Relationship. Beyond what the world would identify as community, he called us to fellowship. We go through the hard times. When I, uh, we moved, our family moved from San Luis Obispo to Bakersfield, California. It was a new environment. Um, and of course, my brother, being the social butterfly he was, when we got plugged into a local church there, he wanted to be a part of everything, going to everything that the youth group was doing. My younger brother, 18 months younger. So we'd come home from youth group, and we'd go in and chat with my mom and dad, and uh, <laughs> my brother would go, Mom, Dad, there's this thing happening. There's this pool and Bible study, because everyone's got pools in Bakersfield. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I really want to go. And they'd find out what the date is, you know, if we had to bring a bag of chips or whatever. And they go, oh, okay, Jacob, are you going? I'm like, no, I, I think I'm, I'm going to hang back. And my mom and dad would go, okay, well, you go with your brother. I'm like, I don't want to go. I don't want to take my shirt off around a bunch of people I don't know. I was super insecure. My brother, God put my brother in my life to constantly put me out of my comfort zone. But that didn't happen without relationship. We're going to make each other uncomfortable, okay? It's just a matter of fact. But we're not going to experience the fellowship that Jesus has created us for unless we step out of our comfort zone, you've heard that said, and choose beyond everything in, the, in our own flesh and desire to be with people. We have to. We were created for that. Genesis 1.26, God created us in his image. What does that mean? 
fellowship, Father, Son, Spirit. They're in such close unity, we have a hard time distinguishing them apart. That's how we're called to be. That's how we're supposed to live. Philippians 2, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, since there are those things, verse 2, make my joy complete. How? By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. We can't do that if we're not together. And as a sister of mine shared last week, It's not enough. If you look at us like Legos, building blocks, it's not enough for us to take the bucket of Legos and pour it out on the floor in a pile and go, look, we're together. There's nothing appealing about that, and it doesn't function. We then have to let the master assemble us together, which means he might connect me with some of you. I know that makes you really uncomfortable. Don't worry, it's mutual. He assembles us together. Notice, if you've watched the movie uh, Infinity or uh, Avengers, the end game, Captain America's there. They're on the precipice of this final last battle. And he doesn't hold Molnir, this hammer, and go, Avengers, be isolated. He says, Avengers, assemble. And everyone uses their own strengths to win this battle together. And again, I say this again. Why did so many people fall in love with this storyline throughout Marvel? Because these heroes had to band together and they went through the depths and through the the highs together. And it forged a fellowship that was tight and unyielding, even to the point where they would die for each other. But again, Romans 12, 1 doesn't call us to literally physically die, although that might come a day for some of us. He calls us in a living sacrifice. We give up on what we think, what we want, and we live our lives to please him. And what pleases him, what makes our heavenly father's joy complete is when we're in unity with each other. Paul's writing the letter, but if you believe 2 Timothy 3, 16, this is the entire word of God. So it may have been penned by Paul, but it's the heart of our heavenly father. What makes his joy complete? When we're together. Mark 9, 33, Jesus overhears his apostles' bickering and jockeying for position for who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And so he asks them, what are you talking about? And he makes it known to them, the greatest will be the least, the largest, the smallest. And he or she, they will be the servant of all. And what I find, again, beautiful about Jesus is he didn't just tell them this. It wasn't just some profound wisdom. He is the epitome, the incarnate wisdom of God. What did Jesus do? He became the least of us all. By submitting himself to the point of death, death on a cross, dying for us while we were still enemies with him, he came to love us. Amazing. That's what it looks like to live in harmony with each other, that I would live my life, not for my interest, but for his, and to seek out how I can encourage, come alongside my brothers and sisters. And we do it mutually. Verse two says, make my joy complete. Joy is not happiness. The Greek word for, there, for that is not happiness. It means gladness, delight. Happiness is a temporary emotion. And I know that a lot of us Bible students here are hearing this going, I got that, I know that, Jake. But there are a lot of us who need to hear it or need to be reminded, and I hear more and more within the churches in this country and abroad, there are preachers and teachers who are espousing this, this lie that Jesus came to make you happy. He didn't do that. 
He came to give us joy. Happiness is a temporary emotion. Joy is independent of situations or feelings, which is why Paul was able to write over and over to the church in Philippi about joy. He knows what pain's like. He was beaten without number, thrown into a nasty, dirty dungeon. So where's this joy coming from? Joy allows us, empowers us to live through the dark situations of our life, but be transcendent above that, to live beyond that, to not be confined or overwhelmed by our current circumstance, but to live with an eternal perspective. Joy is independent of situations or feelings. Joy is a position of the mind. Joy is a posture of the heart. I was, give you some practical examples. I was super happy when my wife and I shared our first kiss. I was probably more happy than she was. But I'm joyful living life with her. We don't, in the morning, wake up, roll over and see each other and go, I want to kiss you. <laughs> Ooh, no. But I have tons of joy experiencing life with my wife. Wrestling and tickling my kids makes me super happy. Watching my kids together, work together, and love each other fills me with gladness. I could come home from the office having a hard day, dealing with various things. When I come up the stairs and I see my kids playing with each other, or I've watched Judah reach for something to give to Ezra to help her without being asked, that gives me joy. Joy was the reason Jesus went to the cross. It was for the joy set before him that he chose to take on the humiliation of the cross, hating everything about that death and suffering, but he had a goal beyond that. He didn't live a life of happiness. He lived a life of joy, which empowers us. Rome, or Nehemiah 8.10, yeah, 8, the joy of the Lord is our strength. So if your life is like this, Maybe pray and ask the Lord to show you what it looks like to live a life of joy. We will have ups and downs, and you will experience emotional ups and downs, but we want to live a life that's stable. God's word says that he is the stability of our times. Jesus is our joy. What completes our joy in life? Unity. Our joy is full when we live in unity. The question yet again is, how do we practically do this? Over in Acts chapter one, you can turn there with me if you'd like, or I'm gonna read from it. Acts chapter one, verse four. Gathering them together, Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. What did the Father promise? Which Jesus said, you heard of me. You heard of from me, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I think this is important to address. This was not something I grew up understanding or ever hearing taught, but I cannot deny its truth because it's in God's word. Jesus said, you'll be baptized with power from the Holy Spirit. Does that mean the disciples, the apostles didn't, already have the Holy Spirit? Does that mean they weren't saved? No. <laughs> to the contrary, man, just when I thought I was gonna get a sip of water. John 20, verse 19, when it was evening on that day, the day of the first week, the first day of the week, which is Sunday on the Jewish calendar, the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. As far as they know, Jesus is still dead. 
Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side, which also gets rid of this issue. Jesus didn't, wasn't resurrected esoterically. He wasn't a ghost. He showed them the wounds, the wound in his side. He even told Thomas, put your hand in there. You can't do that with a ghost. Do we believe in a true, risen, resurrected Jesus? That's what the Bible teaches. When he said this, he showed them, and the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. That was in John, that's in the Gospels. The believers were already sealed by the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians 1.13, sealed with the promise of Jesus' Spirit. Look back at Acts 1.8. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. They received his Spirit, and now he's promising the Spirit upon them. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Where am I going with this? Remember, the question here today is, how does the church function practically? Before I tell you that next point, it's, again, a beautiful picture where Jesus not only preaches this to his guys, he performs it personally. We see from Matthew 3.16, after being baptized, Jesus was baptized by John in water. Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. I am not implying and the Bible does not teach that Jesus wasn't fully God. But we also know from Philippians 2.7 that Jesus emptied himself. You can read it for yourself. It's taken me some years to reconcile this because this is something that unfortunately is not taught enough within the church of God, within the body of Christ. He fills us with his spirit, but we need his power. We see Jesus make a clear distinction between the two, which is why you see the apostles and others come into groups of people who love the Lord or they believe in Jesus and they say, have you received the baptism? Have you received the power of the spirit of God? And they go, well, no. And the, the apostles would lay their hands on them and pray for them, and then bam, it happened. Now, every situation's different. So I'm not saying that you're, if you haven't spoken in tongues, you haven't received the power of God. That's not what the Bible teaches either. But despite religious traditions, the Bible never records or implies that Jesus performed miracles or signs of power until after the Spirit came upon him. If Jesus needed and depended on the power of the Spirit to function, we do too. And that's the next point here. The church depends on the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus model, he teaches us and he models it for us. Again, I wanna make it clear. Jesus is fully God. Hebrews 1 talks about it. He is the perfect image, representation of the Father. When Philip asked him, show us the Father and it's enough. What did Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus is 100% God. But coming down to our world, he emptied himself of the rights and rule of God of the universe, put on human flesh, emptied himself of power, and he, per 
He personally demonstrates what it looks like to be in a dependent relationship with God. Jesus always said, John 5, 19, that verse isn't up there, but I'm telling you, Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. Jesus did nothing out of his own will, his own self-will, his own willpower. He did it only inspired by the Holy Spirit, who is also the Spirit of Christ, Revelation 19.10. And he did only what he saw the Father doing. Now, you might be scratching your head going, wait, I hear them being the same and yet different. Exactly. Welcome to the Trinity of Christ, the Trinity of God. (laughs) Good luck trying to separate the three. (laughs) They're one and the same and yet distinctly unique. And that is the picture of the image we've been created in to function with such harmony that people would look at us and go, I hear what Jake's saying, but it sounds an awfully lot like Lillian Shook. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, I called you out there. When the world sees us together, do they see independent parts doing their own thing? Or do they see the body of Christ submitted, surrendered to the lordship of Jesus and submitted to one another? My feet every day have to submit to my hands clothing them. I have to put shoes on when I wear shoes. I'm a sandals guy. My body requires my hands to clothe it. But my hands can't go out and do work unless the body's clothed, which depends on the body. And if it weren't for the heart, there wouldn't be the blood. I can go on and on and on. You guys see how we are dependent on one another? And as I shared last week, the Holy Spirit is represented as oil. When body parts, our physical body parts move, That oil in our bodies is recruited upon by the body, by the central nervous system to go lubricate those joints. Because when those joints don't have the fluids to lubricate, those body parts grind on each other, even with cartilage. We need the Holy Spirit to empower us, to move among us, to inspire each and every one of us. And it was uh, Jesus in Revelation 2 through 3 who warned five of the seven churches to repent or they would lose the presence of the power of the Spirit amidst their fellowship. So that does not mean you don't have the Holy Spirit. We see people throughout Israel as a nation who have the Spirit of God. But there came a time in Israel's history where most of them departed from the truth. And so there was a remnant. And we see the effect of what happened when the people of God quit living according to the truth of the Spirit of God. So, in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, what did the apostles do? They stayed in Jerusalem like Jesus told them to. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all gathered together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. And the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and Gentiles who were proselytes into the Jewish faith, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and with great perplexity saying to one another, 
What does this mean? But others listening were mocking and saying, they're full of sweet wine. Listening to Bob Marley. But Peter, I'm glad you're reading your Bible. You know that's not in there. But Peter, taking his stand with the 11, raised his voice and declared to them. Let's stop there. He declares to them. Already having received the Holy Spirit, Jesus is not present here. He's ascended and gone back with the Father. Jesus has already breathed on them. They received the Spirit. But then we see something unique and distinct happen in Acts chapter 2. The apostles were then baptized. These are Jesus' words, not mine. Baptized in the power of the Holy Spirit. His Spirit is within us and His Spirit is upon us. His Spirit is also alongside us, which is why Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20, behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. So we, they didn't have him physically with them anymore, but they had his spirit in them, with them, and upon them, which is why the church as a collective of disciples of Christ desperately must depend and function by the power of the spirit of God. When Jesus had the spirit come upon him in power to start his ministry, what was the first thing he did? He went into the wilderness and he starved for 40 days and 40 nights. That is not the logic of man. You and I experience the power of God come upon us. We're hard charging. We're ready to do great things for God. The spirit led him into the wilderness. And at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, once his physical body had been depleted of all of its strength, then he came face to face with the epitome of evil, Satan himself. But because Jesus was led by the spirit of God, Meditating on the word of God, we see, because Jesus quotes Deuteronomy to him the whole time, Jesus defeated him by the power of the spirit of God. And if we are the body of Christ surrendered under his lordship, we have to function the same way. We cannot separate the Holy Spirit from the word of God because they're one and the same. As I continue to see, we continue to read. Peter now, in Acts chapter 2, explains to all of these Jewish folks who are coming from different regions, speaking different languages, he explains to them what they're witnessing and hearing with their own ears and eyes. He shares the gospel in a very convicting way, if you read Acts chapter 2 on your own time. And because of the power of the Holy Spirit upon Peter and the apostles, 3,000 people entered into a relationship with Jesus as their Lord and Savior because of the power of the Holy Spirit. How was this possible? The Spirit of God, Zechariah 4, 6. God promised to Zerubbabel. It's not by might. It's not by power, but by his Spirit, the Spirit of God. In verse 9 of Zechariah 4, the Lord continues, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, for who is despised the day of small things? And I love this. How many people were following Jesus up to before what we read in Acts chapter two? A few hundred, right? Several hundred. And bam, they hear the word 3,000 because of the power of the Holy Spirit moving amongst them. It wasn't one apostle, it was all of them declaring the deeds of God. I love how prophetic this promise is. Isaiah 28, 16 prophesied of the cornerstone. And Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 6, this choice stone laid in Zion, a precious cornerstone is Jesus. 
who, for anyone who places their faith in him, will not be disturbed, not be disappointed. So you don't put your faith in a pastor or a pope or a preacher or the church. We don't put our faith in humanity. We don't put our faith in the church. We work with people in the church. We put our faith in Jesus. And if he's the cornerstone, that means in 1 Peter 2, 5, we're living stones. We're growing. Side note, I went on a crazy hike. I think I shared this more than once. I won't tell you the details. But after this exhaust, towards the end of the exhausting hike, I was so depleted of strength. I was hallucinating. I never knew what hallucination was like until I went on this hike. And I remember walking. I'm in the Sierra Nevadas in California. I'm hiking on this trail and I look up and on this burnt log is this Komodo dragon. <laughs> like my buddy's in front of me and I kid you not, I stopped, I'm hiking, I'm like, And then as I went further, we both shared that we were hearing voices. We thought there was a group ahead of us. There was no one there. We were deep in the heart of the National Forest. We were hearing voices because we were exhausted. I looked at these boulders on the Sierra Nevada Trail, and I'll never forget. I'm looking at this boulder as I'm coming up to it because the trail leads off on one direction. I see this giant boulder the size of a house, and it's doing this. I'm like, why would anyone do drugs? This is not comfortable. I don't like this. But when I think of living stones, that's what I imagine. Except we're not one stone that's living and growing. We're multiple and we're fit together. And if you know anything about the construction of the temple of God in Jerusalem, it was the stones were cut out of limestone, out of one giant chunk of limestone, and they were done away from the temple mount so that the Temple Mount was always a place of peace. And they had to be fitted together. And to this day, raise your hand if you've been to Jerusalem, by the way, okay? You've been to the the, the wall, the Western Wall. Those stones were fit so tightly, you can't even put a piece of paper in there. We're talking 70 plus ton stones. That's a picture of who we are, except we're living stones. And as we function together under the tutelage of Jesus' spirit, we grow and we're fitted perfectly together. It's a beautiful picture. Going back to Philippians chapter two, verse two. How do we become of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose? Let me ask a question. How does a family live like a family? What do families functionally do to exist like a family? I wrote a blog on this years ago when I was into blogging. Didn't last long. (laughs) I wrote a blog about the importance of families sharing a meal together, breaking bread together. Look at Acts chapter two, verse 40. After we see 3,000 added, it says, with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And... I should say this. These are my points, and I think they're worthwhile sharing. A healthy and vibrant church doesn't grow by programs or personalities. A healthy and vibrant church grows by sharing in the gospel together, unapologetically and undiluted. The gospel. We are sinners separated from God, and Jesus came down and lived a perfect life and died our death for our sin so that we might have a relationship with God through Jesus If we ignore that or don't believe that, then we're to be pitied more than anyone. 
We got to remember that truth. And that's the next point. Church doesn't practice programs. They didn't come with a program. Church lives life together, laboring for the gospel. They labored for the gospel. Acts 2.42, this is how they functioned, how they broke bread together, how they lived as a family of God. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. Gathered regularly, verse 46 says, day by day, not once a week, day by day they continued with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Wow. The apostles' teaching is the whole counsel of God, by the way, Acts 20, 27. They shared into constantly consuming God's word together, like we are right now, like you are. And then they had fellowship. The word fellowship is koinonia, and it means to share, genuinely share, by caring for each other, just like Jesus shares himself with us and cares for us, where to share with each other and care for one another. Breaking bread is a twofold thing. They shared meals together daily and they took communion together regularly because this is an identifying marker for people who trust in Jesus together. His body, his blood shed for us. And then lastly, prayer, definitely not least. In Acts 4.31, we see what happens when people in the church come together to pray together. They when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. You wanna speak and share the gospel in boldness? You wanna know, how do I share my faith with others? Here's a suggestion. Start gathering with some people and praying together. If you seek the Father's heart in prayer together, there's power. You will experience the power of God practically in your life. I promise you that. I've experienced it. And if you want to know where people are getting together for that, go talk to Les. <laughs> Pastor Prayer. Moving on here. There's a belief where two or three are gathered in Jesus' name that that's church. That's an aspect of the church functioning, but that does not define the church. This is in Matthew 18. I'm going to read this, and then I really have to finish up here. This is in Matthew 18, starting at verse 15. And in my Bible, it's, it's subtitled Discipline and Prayer. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed." Your text there may look different because that's actually a quotation out of the Old Testament. This was prescription for the people of Israel and how to handle and deal with conflict among their members. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been bound or have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two, or two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am in their midst. That does not teach that in order to have his spirit in us, we have to be grouped up in twos of threes. That also doesn't define the church. And I'll show you why here in a second. 
This is specific teaching for discipline in the church, and it is teaching us about prayer of agreement. In Ephesians 4, verse 4, we read, there's one body, there's one spirit. Just as you also were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. And here it is in verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. That's a lot of different members. How can you get that in two or three people? That doesn't mean they don't have Jesus, and that doesn't mean they're not functioning as the church, but that does not define the church. Simply being with two or three other believers, the word church can also be translated as congregation. So again, letting God define for us what church or congregation means, over in Exodus 12, verse 1, this is the first time this word is used, referring to the people of Israel. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, speak to all the congregation of Israel. Congregation here is referred to a huge mass of people. Saying on the 10th of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households. So here we see a clear distinction between the congregation, the church you could say of Israel, and the households that compose it. The church is the congregation of God's people composed of many households. So if all we experience is this right here, we're missing a part. And if all we experience is within a household, we're missing a part. It's both and. And here's my next point. Israel's composition as a nation provides the paradigm of the church's construction. I didn't realize that until we started going through numbers. How we function is like, Israel's like a prototype for how we function and move as a people. And I gotta finish here in Philippians 2. Back in Philippians 2, verse 3. I gotta turn there myself. Philippians 2, starting at verse 3. Paul continues and says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with the humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus says in John 14, 34, a new commandment I give you, love one another. Even as I've loved you, love each other. This was Jesus' charge to them in how to be the church. Love each other the way I love you. Serve each other the way I serve you. We see him say it again in John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. John 15, 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So just like our identity in Jesus is connected to our sacrifice for each other, Jesus' identity in the Father is connected to his sacrifice for us. John 17, 3, Jesus is praying to the Father within the hearing of his apostles. He says, Father, I now come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. How? He says in verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Our unity, and this is the last point, our unity with Jesus is dependent on our connection in fellowship with each other. 
What did that look like in the early church? In Acts chapter 2, verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and with many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and, all, and had all things in common. Let me make a clarification. This isn't an argument for communism or socialism. These people willingly gave of their, themselves and what they had to others. Jesus' love controls us. It doesn't exact things from us. Jesus is not a dictator. Continuing in verse 45, they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And so as we gather together, surrendered to Jesus, submitted to one another, we experience God's unity in his fellowship in a dynamic way that not even death itself can stop. Matthew 16, 18. It is an incredible thing to be a part of the family of God. This is my last example. Sorry, but my brother, my brother, my brother-in-law, but we're like brothers. We both have experienced what it's like to be around a group of people, a family that love each other. And it was so compelling. Brian and I married into it. That's been one thing that I've gotten to witness within Cam's family is how they love each other. It ain't perfect. There's dysfunction from time to time, but there's always a cohesion and a love for one another. That's how the church is to function. Let, would you pray with me? Jesus, there is more here to talk about than we have time, let alone patience. <laughs> Jesus, I just ask that you would give us understanding to, be, to, to know how to be your people. You came to us and, and invited us into fellowship with you because of your love for us. We experience fellowship when we live a daily sacrifice to love each other before ourselves, giving preference of honor to one another before ourselves. I just ask Jesus, for all of us here who know you, that you would help us not only understand in our minds, but truly be believe and, and live out of that belief of what it means to live in fellowship together to be in the same relationship with each other the way you, Jesus, are with the Father. Help us to live that out. Would you, Holy Spirit, inspire, motivate, and empower us? If we just show up, take part in your word, break bread together, share in life together, and pray together, you do the rest if we will just avail ourselves through that. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you but hears this and goes, man, I want that kind of relationship, I want that camaraderie in Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage them to come and talk and pray with someone to start that relationship with you. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. Their simple being here and online has been an encouragement to me. Would you continue to build up your body and draw others to yourself to be a part of this family, Jesus? In your name, amen. Amen.